0: welcome to another great message by pastor adrian wright lead pastor at anchor church we pray this message will encourage inspire and transform your life our heart is to share the hope of jesus with our city and nation chapter 1, the first chapter of John. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them up. I think that there's just something supernatural that happens through the pages that doesn't happen off of a phone screen. Um, maybe, I don't know. It's uh, you know, I feel like there's something, there, may, there might be something. Um, so if you don't have a Bible, we do have some Bibles at the back that you can purchase, and we want to encourage you to get stuck in um, and to take notes and to write in your Bible and to and to just really get it into your spirit. Um, but in the the first chapter of John, John really tells us about Jesus in a, a very powerful way. and so I want to just read a, f- a few verses uh, to start off with this morning from John one verse one. and it tells us in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the Word. He is the full expression of of who God is. He's, he's what God wants to say to us, what God has declared over us. It's the Word of God. And, and His Word and His Son are so synonymous that they're spoken about, about in this way. And it says, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. I've just said that we were like John the Baptist in the wilderness. And, and, and we're not the light, but we give witness to the light. We're not pointing people to us, to a, to a system, to a, to a moral code, to a philosophy that's based in mere human tradition. But we're here to point people to Jesus. We're not the light, but we point people to the light. We bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The world does not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, deep crying out unto deep. Witnessing, you are a child of God to all who believe in him. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's a rebirth, born of God. And the word became flesh. Jesus became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of both grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Then it says this in verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God. Nobody knew what God was like. Nobody knew his heart's intentions. Nobody knew whether he was cruel and mean and, 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 and a hard God who would, who would uh, just punish people consistently or, or make life difficult for people. People didn't know whether he was perhaps disengaged or disinterested. They didn't know what he looked like. They didn't know what he was like. No one had seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side He, Jesus, has made him known. Jesus came to show us the Father. He came to show us the Father. From the beginning of time, people have speculated about God. The Bible says that in creation, there is sufficient evidence for the general revelation of God. We have the thought, why are we here? Why is anything here? And the Bible doesn't raise that question. Our very existence raises the question. Why is anything here rather than nothing? And when you look at the powerful creation in which we live, when you see the oceans and you, and you, and you behold the stars and you see the beauty that, and, and, and the, the magnitude and the finite detail of everything that is created on this earth, And even the desires in humanity that we have, our desire for relationship and morality and for meaning and purpose, all of these things point towards the fact that there is a powerful creator. And Romans 1 says, everybody knows. Everybody sees this. And so creation itself raises the question, who is God? We know he's powerful, but what is he like? And then a question I think every one of us have wondered, what does God want with me? What does he want for me? What does he want from me? And many, unable to answer that question, have turned to either God is evil or he is simply disinterested. He's either a God who has a malicious intent because of the pain that we suffer in life and the difficulties that we go through in life. We conclude that if life is this difficult, God must be evil or God doesn't care. He's not interested in what we're going through. He has more important things to worry about. Why would he be aware of me? There's, there's you know, war in the Middle East and in, and in Russia and in all over the places. You know, there's, there's all kinds of calamities and disasters. Why would God care about what's happening in my life living in Joburg in 2023? Why would he be aware of me? And so most people live their lives agnostically. They live their lives saying, I don't know if there is a God, And if there was, I'm not sure he would be concerned about me. I'm not sure that he would care about me. But then John 1 tells us that God actually had a desire for us to know him, for us to know what he was like, for us to see him, for us to experience his grace and his truth, the truth of who he is. And so what he did in order for us to experience him and see him and know him in truth is he sent Jesus. He sent His Son, who Hebrews tells us is the exact imprint of His nature. Jesus is everything that God has ever wanted to say. Hebrews 1 verse 1 to 3 says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the exact imprint. Of the nature of God. And so when we read about Jesus' life in the gospels, when we see how he ministered and the things he said and how he treated the, 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 everything from the elderly to the, the young and, and, and those caught in sin and, and and how he spoke to men and how he addressed the religious people. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see the heart of God. We see what God is like. We see the heart of the Father put on display. We see how Jesus dealt with the woman who was caught in adultery. How he expresses his grace and forgiveness over her. When Jesus calls the the little children over to him, we see God's heart for children, for kids, how he wants them to be protected. Jesus gives some strong warnings for those that would cause children to stumble. We see what he thinks of pharisaical legalism, religion that has become self-righteousness and how people are actually resisting God through religion because they've become so proud of who they are that they no longer look to Jesus for righteousness. We see how passionate Jesus is about the church. I have like this healthy fear in me where You know, I've been a part of the church and I've been through good situations and bad situations, too many stories to tell in my 20 years of being in full-time ministry. But I can tell you that one thing I'm very careful of is I never, ever speak badly about God's church. I understand that it's led by imperfect people like me and it's filled with imperfect people like you. So we understand that just like every family, but God's church is, is the bride of Christ and so we honor it and we respect it. And we, we do whatever God calls us to do in regards to it. Because it's his body. And Jesus is passionate about the church. He says, a zeal for your house has consumed me. He quotes the psalmist in saying that when he cleaned out and cleared out the, the temple. We see Jesus' commitment to prayer. How he would withdraw from the crowds and spend time with the Father. We see his belief about giving. I always am amazed at the fact that Jesus watched a widow who probably had very little source of income, had lost her husband and takes everything she has and puts it into the offering. And Jesus is watching and doesn't stop her. He doesn't get up and take it out and say, you know what, here's a bit more. You need this more than the church does. No, he understands that she is expressing trust in God, and there is a blessing in that. God will not forsake those who trust in him. So why stop people from trusting in him? And people who have unhealthy ideas about giving towards the church, you didn't get it from Jesus. That thought didn't come from Jesus, because Jesus was very happy to watch people give into the offering and approve of it and say, this is trusting God. And so we have got to drop some of those prejudices that we have. We saw God's heart towards giving. We saw his kindness towards the hurting, those that were in need, how Jesus had time for them and and prayed for them and trusted God for their healing, how he worked and operated by the power of of the Holy Spirit to set all the captives free, all those who were oppressed of the of the devil. The Bible says that Jesus was there to set them free. We saw his power towards those who needed healing, his provision for the hungry. The Bible says that Jesus looked at the crowds and he was moved by compassion. The word moved by compassion, compassion in the, in the Hebrew sense, they believed that those empathetic emotions of compassion came from somewhere in the bowels like you would, you would you literally, the English translation, I think of it would be something like gut-wrenching. That gut-wrenching feeling of, oh, I care about these people. That's what Jesus felt when he saw people in need. That's what he felt when he looked upon the crowds and miraculously provided for them. When God sees you in need, he's not disinterested. He's compassionate. He's moved with a gut-wrenching sense of compassion for your life. Isn't that reassuring this morning? God cares to that extent about us. We saw Jesus's wisdom in the face of false accusation. How he remained silent while they accused him over and over again, man, that's something that we could practice. <laughs> Especially on social media. It was so hard for me not to get into Twitter wars. I really only go into Twitter to talk about rugby. And I and I and I had a few thoughts after the game yesterday, that I wanted to i wanted a fight. I was looking for a fight. Um, but the wisdom of Jesus is that we can remain still and trust God in the, in the face of false accusations and, and people who come against us. We see Jesus' definitive statements about salvation, that salvation wasn't a good feeling, that salvation wasn't about trying to be good. Salvation wasn't about being religious. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So it wasn't all religions. It wasn't all philosophies. It wasn't human effort. It was definitive. It's exclusive to salvation is in Jesus. That's God telling us that. Anything else is foolishness. We saw the requirements that he put forward to those who would follow him. If you, if you want to follow me, you can't serve two masters. You can't be running off to different gods. You can't be worshiping yourself. You have to take up your cross. Die to yourself and follow me. And it's something we do daily. This is what Jesus showed us about God, his heart. And after all of this time, three years of ministry and incredible encounters and everything that we read about in the, in the Gospels, at, at the, we see halfway through the book of John, Thomas and Philip, They come to Jesus and they say this in John 14, verse 5. It says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. No one had seen God, but Jesus came to show us the Father. And then Jesus says, no, sorry, if you think you haven't seen the Father, but you've seen me. You've seen my ministry. You've seen what I'm about. You've seen what I've said. You've seen what I've done. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You do know him. Philip chimes in. He should have just kept quiet. But Philip chimes in and he says, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. That will be enough. If you could just show us the Father real quick, we'll be satisfied. This was a facepalm moment for Jesus. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen the Father, how can you say, show us the Father? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? It's so clear and obvious that my life, he says, Jesus goes on to say, I don't do anything of my own authority, but whatever I hear from the Father, I say. Whatever he tells me to do, I do. And so my life is directed by the will of the Father. And therefore, if you want to know God's will, look at my life and you'll know God. You would have seen the Father. I believe that our world today, our city, our nation has that same desire. People are still asking this. Show us the Father. Show us who God is. People have a desire to know who God is. And inevitably, they show up at church. Or they, they, they go onto the internet and they read up about Christianity. They want to know who is it that represents God if I wanted to find out who this God is. And so it's our job, it's our commission from God to show the world who the Father is, to show the world who Jesus is. Jesus called us His witnesses because we've seen Jesus. How could we have seen Jesus if He lived 2,000 years ago? We've seen Him through that personal supernatural encounter and revelation where the eyes of our hearts were enlightened by the presence of God. His spirit spoke to our spirit and we met Jesus. We met him in spirit and in truth. And so now we know who God is and what he's like. And we get to witness about that. We get to be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, Jesus is alive. How do we know? I've met him. I've personally encountered him. This is what he did in my life. And then we get to be those witnesses to our city. Jesus said in John 20, it says, he said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, what did the father send Jesus to do? To reveal him, to show the world who he was. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We've been sent. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So as spirit-filled believers, not religious people, not churchgoers, not people that read a Bible once long ago, but people who are spirit-filled believers, we we, we take the presence of God into every situation we go to. And we have been sent even as the Father sent Jesus. And so the idea is, is that as we follow after Jesus, we are transformed into his image. And one thing that I've always said about our church is that even as Jesus said that those who have seen me have seen the Father, my hope is is that people will be able to say that those who have seen us have seen the Son. Those that have seen the church And the way they love each other, and the way they serve, and the way they give, and the way they they make a difference, and the way they live out their faith, there, there surely is something about their lives. They've been transformed. There's something, there's a supernatural quality about them. And we can see that God is good by looking at them. Have you ever noticed how when you really love someone, or look up to someone, or spend a lot of time with someone, you start becoming like them? you start taking on their characteristics. You know, when you, when you have those friends that you grew up with in high school and there were certain things that they used to say that then you began to say, and now it's like 30 years later and you still say the same things because you just hung out with them a lot and you spoke, began to speak the same way. They take on your characteristics and you take on their characteristics. And, and this is especially true when you're a parent. You realize how your kids, as they're growing up, they begin to mimic you I see my oldest son put his younger brothers in their place in exactly the same way that I would have done it if it was me. Same facial expressions, you know, same tone of voice, same things that he says like, oh my gosh, what have I created? I see him acting exactly like me. The other day I walked into the room and he was doing, he was busy doing 100 push-ups while reading the Bible. And I thought he's just like his dad. He's become just just like me. The scriptures tell us that the more we look to Jesus, the more we behold him, the more we become like him. Our primary job is to behold Jesus because we are not capable of changing ourselves. No person can change themselves fundamentally. You can change the way you dress. You can you could take on some other way of speech, whatever. but to be fundamentally changed requires a supernatural work of God. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us how that happens. It says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, the, the person of Jesus, are being transformed into the same image. From glory to glory, even as from the Lord the Spirit. This is the work the Holy Spirit does that as we behold Jesus, we are transformed. And we're transformed from glory. To glory. We're becoming more and more like Jesus. And so the important point here is that this is not imitation. People say you you know, you, you might have worn a bangle at one point in your life that said, What would Jesus do? And you thought, if I could just think to myself, every single time I'm about to do something, what would Jesus do? But how many of you thought about that for more than once a week? How often was it just a little? randomly colored bangalong that has no impact on your life. Because this is not about trying to think what Jesus would do and then trying to act in the same way. We don't have the ability for that. No, this is about looking into the face of Jesus and allowing your personal encounter with Jesus to become a daily walk. And as you behold Him and as you put your faith in Him and as you trust in His finished work, you're not just copying Him, You're becoming like Him. This is transformation, not imitation. We're becoming like Jesus. We're not just acting like Jesus. You won't be able to authentically act like Jesus until you've become like Him. And so being precedes doing. And this is what God has for us. This week I was reflecting on how beautiful it is that Jesus... Calls his disciples to come away with him. It's an incredible part of our relationship with God that he hides us in the secret place, that he meets with us one on one in a very personal and very, very individual way. We meet corporately, we gather together, the church is here, at Christ. Christ's body is present, his spirit is here, and and, and he works through his church. But each of us has a personal and individual relationship with God that's very deep and very intimate and, and very personal to each of us. And that's part of God's plan. In Mark 6, verse 31, Jesus said to his disciples, they were in the midst of a maddening crowd, lots of ministry happening. And then Jesus says to his disciples, come away with me. Let's go, let us go alone to a quiet place and rest for a while. Come away with me. Let's go to a quiet place and just rest for a while. This is the invitation of Jesus to every one of his disciples. That we would get away from the maddening crowd. That we would get away from the social media streams. That we would get away from the TV series and the busyness of life and the demands of of our careers, and that we would come away with Jesus to a quiet place and rest for a while and hear His voice so that we can behold Him and be transformed. This is the context of transformation, is coming away with Jesus. Jesus longs for us to come away with Him so that He could speak to us. And there's several examples of this in the Scripture. Actually, too many that I could that I could go in today, but I want to just mention one or two because we know that moment that we read about in Acts 9 when, when, when Saul became Paul, when he had an, a personal encounter with the resurrected Christ. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then Jesus takes Saul. He's, he's blinded until he reaches Damascus and Ananias goes and prays for him. Ananias means grace. And when grace puts his hands on him, the scales fall off, he sees. And now he, he, he has been reborn. He knows Jesus is real, but he needs to be trained in righteousness. He needs to understand the gospel. And so Paul gives us some insights in Galatians 1 verse 11. He says, For I would have known, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man Nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was revealed to me, I saw this. I experienced it. And so I know the gospel, not because it was some religious thing I was taught, but because I personally encountered Jesus. Personal encounter. Then in verse 15, he says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remain with him for 15 days. So he has a personal encounter with Jesus, receives the call of God. And this is exactly what we're talking about. The reason why the Son is revealed to us is so that we can go and preach the gospel to the nations. But Paul says, I didn't immediately confer with man. I didn't immediately jump into you know, going to find out from somebody else who Jesus was. I allowed God to speak to me, to teach me, and so Paul was taught by the Holy Spirit so powerfully regarding the gospels that when he eventually met up with Peter and the other apostles, he was already an authority on the message of Jesus. And I'm not saying that we don't need to be trained. I'm not saying that we don't need to, we don't need to lean into all, those, all the ways that God has called the church to equip believers. Obviously, we should. But I'm saying that those things need to be undergirded by a fact that you personally have had an encounter with Jesus. That he has revealed himself to you. This is how we get to become witnesses of the resurrection. We've been talking about Jesus in Revelation a little bit as well in the series. And in Revelation 2.17, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him I will give some of them hidden manner, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, there's a lot that I could unpack in that. But what I just wanted to mention here was this idea that when we get saved, Jesus gives us a new name, just like Saul became Paul. But it says that this is a name that is so personal and so and so individual, and so intimate. It's something that you know that no one else even knows. It's like God calls us away to the secret place, and there he speaks things to us that no one else knows but us. And sometimes when we take those things out, and we express them to to others, and we tell others about it, it's almost like it doesn't quite compute. It doesn't translate as well. But the point is is that the source of our identity and our destiny, which is what a name represented in biblical times, is not found in what people around us say. It's not found in what our society says about us. It's not found in in any part of our background or or our race or our culture or our heritage. It's not found in anything. The who we are is found in this place that Jesus has said something about us in a secret place that only we know that no one else knows. It's that personal. Your destiny rests in that secret place, in the name that Jesus has given you, that no one else knows except the one who receives it. You've received a new name, a new destiny, a new identity in the secret place. And so that personal encounter that we have with Jesus then leads us into an authentic relationship with Jesus. We receive salvation and then sanctification, transformation so my question to you this morning is, are you beholding Jesus? Are you looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith? And to look at him doesn't just mean that you look at him blankly. You don't just stare. It means that you put your faith in him. You trust in him. You rest in him. You make sure that what you believe about him is accurate to who he is. You see him in the scriptures. You, you connect with him through prayer. You adore him through worship. Are you beholding Jesus, looking squarely into his face, understanding what he has accomplished for you? If you do, it will be impossible for you to stay the same. There's no way you can stay the same if that's what you're doing. This is not a fading glory like Moses had when he encountered Jesus and then he came off the mountain and his face was shining and he put a veil over his face. And we thought that the veil was there so that, so that people wouldn't be blinded by the glory coming off of his face. But Corinthians tells us, Second Corinthians 3 tells us, he put the veil there so that people wouldn't see that the, the glory was fading. When you encounter the law, it's just a once of oh, I want to do this, and then over time it just fades out, becomes nothing. That's what religion does. No, this is an abiding presence of God that causes us to be transformed. And one sure way to know when you what you then to know that what you have experienced and encountered in Christ is actually transforming you, is that your desires begin to change. The Bible tells us that God doesn't just give us the power to do, but He gives us the will to do. He's actually changing our desires. And one sure way that you know this is happening is not that you would desire less, but that you actually begin desiring more. You expect that the things that you desire however, now become less and less about you and more about more about Jesus and others and about bringing glory to God. That's what you would expect to see. It's amazing how many people claim to love Jesus and then live lives that are completely contrary to His heart. But when we behold Him, when we experience His love, we can no longer be, be apathetic. His passion becomes our passion. His desires become our desires. His vision becomes our purpose. The things that break the heart of God break our hearts also. Like somebody once said, the love of God is free. But experiencing it will cost you everything. Once you've experienced it, it will cost you everything. There's two places in Scripture where we see Jesus so moved by compassion and by love and by the heart heart of God that he weeps. Two places in scripture. There's a third when he was in the garden of Gethsemane. The way it tells us that he learned obedience through those tears. But two places in the gospel when dealing with others that we see Jesus weep. And the first one is in Luke 19 verse 41. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus drew near to the city of Jerusalem, filled with people that claimed to be religious, and he wept. He wept. Jesus cried for them. Because they didn't know the time of their visitation. They didn't know the time of their personal encounter. And chose religion over relationship, self-justification over salvation. And so in essence, what breaks the heart of God is those that don't recognize Jesus. Those that haven't recognized the season of grace and the opportunities presented to them through the gospel to be made whole. And this breaks God's heart. When my wife and I got married, we went to Bali on honeymoon, which was amazing. It was wild. It was crazy. We rented a scooter, nearly died several times. But as we were going through this beautiful place, this island of Bali, it's as if we started to feel an incredible burden for the people. And literally, every place that you went to had a little temple or or a little shrine or a little offering. And I remember even in the scooter that we rented, there was a little offering that they put in the little cubbyhole for some god in there. And I remember we were witnessing, we became friends with our taxi driver. He still likes my posts on Facebook. It's like, you know, years later, he still, still does that. Still sends me messages every now and again. Kadek from Bali. And we started to witness to him and we started to explain the difference between karma and grace. And we even contacted Phil and Sharon Smithers from Overland Missions. We say, Man, what is happening in Bali? We need missionaries here. These islands need to be reached. We, we need a church. We need a revival. We need to launch Anchor Bali. Some of you are like, I'll go. I'll plant. I feel called. I feel called by the Lord. But when you've stared into the eyes of Jesus and you've experienced that personal love and grace, you cannot imagine that there are people out there today that are living without that are struggling that are striving that are searching that are hurting when we've had such an incredible redemption in our own lives and such great peace oh that you would know what makes for peace how could we be content sitting in a room feeling good about ourselves while there is a world out there who does not know him that does not have that peace And so our prayer, even through the series, is God, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Allow us to see the people of this city and extend that invitation to each one of them. The second place we see Jesus weep is in John 11, verse 32. It says, When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That's the heart of God, church. God isn't apathetic to your pain. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. What I love about this is that Jesus knows that he's arrived to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows that in the end, it's all going to work out just fine. And that, you know, if it was me, I wouldn't weep. I'd be like, stand back, everybody. It's party time. Now, you think you've seen cool things? Now watch this. I would be so joyful in the midst of their weeping because I know I've come to overturn their sorrow. But the amazing thing about Jesus is, is that even though He knows that they're weeping, even though He knows that He's about to do a miracle that will will put an end to the cause for their sorrow. He still takes a moment to weep with them. It's a powerful stuff. He cries with them. He was deeply moved and greatly troubled. This is the heart of our God, far from being a cold-hearted, distant, legalistic God as so many have portrayed Him to be. He weeps with those who weep. He mourns with those who mourn. His heart breaks for the hurting. The Bible says he's close to the brokenhearted. If your heart feels a little broken today, I've got good news for you. God is close. He's not far. Exodus 3, verse 7 to 8, my final verse. This shows the heart of God and this was a this was really a a prophetic statement about what Jesus would do. When the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt and were treated harshly by their taskmasters, God shows up to Moses and says to Moses, it says, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have surely seen and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. He's seen your affliction. He's heard your prayers. He's heard your tears. He's heard your cries for help. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That is God's desire for those enslaved by sin. Those that are slaves to the flesh, those that are slaves to this world, those that are slaves to pain and hurt. God's desire, he says, I've seen my people. I know their cries. I've heard their cries. I have come down to deliver them. I want them to be brought out of that land into a land flowing with milk and honey. And that land is our relationship with Jesus. I can tell you from firsthand experience that if you are afflicted and brokenhearted, and you call upon God, He will hear you, and He will help you. If you're walking with Jesus, if we're walking with Jesus, if we're the church of Jesus, if we're the ones who show the Father to our world, then that same concern and desire for our city that God has for the hurting should be ours as well. Amen, church? Come on, that should be our desire. But we're so wrapped up in our own lives. We're so wrapped up in what we want and what we're pursuing and what, and that what we have time for and, and what we're passionate about. That we don't see people this way anymore. But when, we're, when we become more like Jesus, by beholding him, we begin serving like he did. He says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom. So we begin giving our lives, putting our comfort aside so that we can start serving people the same way that Jesus served us, and as a result, seeing a city and a nation changed. The world is crying out, show us the Father. Show us the Father. That's our mission. I want you to do some homework for me today. And the homework is this. Besides for the fact that you need to be in a place where you come away and where you are looking and beholding Jesus in your own heart. I want to ask you to try and think about at least one thing that you can do to practically show the heart of God to those around you this week. It might be something small. It might be a prayer. It might be a gift. It might be a word. It might be a phone call. It might be a message. It might be... It might be helping somebody in some way, but whatever it is, what can you practically do this week to show the world who the Father is? Because that's what you've been called to do. And again, my heart is not that this would be a once-off series and that this would just be a quick thing that we do and that you do it for one week, but this would become a mode of life because it is the life that we've been called to. We've been called to show the city who Jesus is, to show them who the fuck